He has been on the job the longest of this group here. You have been the superintendent of your school district since the year 2007, but you actually started in the district in 1982 as a classroom teacher. Just to get us going, can you tell us, in the time that you have been superintendent, how has your notion of the job changed? How has your approach to solving problems, decision-making, the process, has it evolved over the several years now that you have held your position? I'd have to say, in a general way, that overall, every year, to me, has been a little more complicated and a little more challenging. And, and in some ways, I wonder if that's because in my first year, I really didn't know what I was doing. Mm-hmm. Um, but, or I really didn't know and understand the depth and complexity of everything. And, and, and that's not actually the case, except that every year, as we've uh, increased our standards, as things have changed in our communities, as uh, we've changed the, uh, the changing needs or served the changing needs of our students, I think that it's just continued to grow in complexity about the things that we need to be doing, whether we're talking about finance, whether we're talking about teaching and learning, whether we're talking about community engagement, um, social media, all of those things over the years have become more complicated. And conversations that I'm having now as I begin my eighth year as a superintendent are, are different conversations than some of the ones I had as my first year. In do, you, do you have a sense right now that the challenges that you were facing or the, uh, the ideas that you had for your district when you first came in, are they the same types of ideas? Uh, which is to say, are, are you dealing with the, the, uh, a similar issue of problems, but perhaps different in tone or degree or complexity, or have the, the problems changed? I think in, in most ways it's uh, a different level of complexity. It, it might be a, the different attitude of the community, or you know we have a lot of outside forces that we deal with, and a lot, and that's uh, regulatory issues. Those things have changed and continue to have gotten more strenuous, more complex. Uh, as we deal with each legislative session, those issues continue to get more complex. I see. Uh, I'm going to jump to the end of our panel with Superintendent Cruz because you have been on this job. You have a deep history with public education. But in terms of being the, the superintendent for the Austin schools, you began in April. And so I wonder, tell me a little bit about your expectations of coming into the job. And in the couple of months that you have been doing it, does it measure up to what you expected? Is it completely different? How does it look when you're on the inside as opposed to the outside? Well, you know, Austin's a wonderful community, and it's great. As I see out today, there are many different partners and parents and uh, a board member out in the community, so I'm gonna, I know I'm going to get checked quite often on this <laughs> one. So if I see something wrong, please just sort of text me and maybe not tweet it, or, and I'll make sure to I'll correct myself. But I think expectations, and I was a superintendent before in Laredo, so a district about a little under 24,000 students. So the superintendency in general was not uh, as new, but um, I do think it's different. I think that um, for me in Austin, working in a system of 86,000 students with 129 sites, there's a lot of complexity. Uh, but with it are the good points around leadership, and that's about building vision and building support around that vision. And in Austin, what I love about Austin is that we have rich diversity of opinion, of thought, of background, and I think that really enhances leadership and enhances vision. So for me, um, I walked into it eyes, eyes wide open right. um, with full understanding of the complexities of the superintendency and also of Austin, and I think that's all been a benefit. What I think has maybe uh, perhaps changed from previous experiences um, is one that in Austin there is a strong focus on the use of technology and how we're going to use technology in general to support our students, to engage with our community, 
because in Austin, the richness in Austin is there, there needs to be significant engagement in decision making. And um, that expectation, I walked into the door with that expectation, and it right. certainly is there today. Right, right. I heard for the very first time a couple of weeks ago, bring your own device to school, which is what my daughter is doing at her middle school in Austin. <laughs> that, to me, I think is a fascinating thing, completely different from when, obviously, I was in school. Do you have a sense that you've been able to get your arms around the position in the time that you've been in it? Do you feel like you are in control, or do you feel like, in some ways, you're being tugged on and pulled in so many different directions that other people have the control? You know, and that's an excellent question. It's, it's an ebb and a flow. Sometimes I feel like, yes, uh, and then uh, here comes the next decision, and it's, I need to circle back. Right. And it may be circling back with yeah. uh, a few of our key thought leaders. It could be circling back with an entire school community around particular issues. And so um, while that, I do think, is, could be challenging, that actually is what inspires me. I, I truly enjoy problem solving, and because of that, um, that just sort of makes the job even richer because it's always about taking an issue and how can we make things better, whatever that, that issue may be. Uh, I'll turn to you, Superintendent Cabrera. You and I had been talking last week about the position. Uh, you have uh, been in now just over a year. Mm -hmm. But as you had told me, you have come in under fairly unique circumstances yes. in the El Paso ISD. I'll sort of ask you the same question about coming into the job and what your expectations were. Well, I think, you know, I, certainly I, I, I couldn't verify this, but, you know, I'm probably one of the first superintendents ever to spend uh, quite a bit of time with the FBI, with TEA, and uh, with the local district attorney in my first three months in office. So that was Because quite, your predecessor, obviously. Well, yeah, and there's ongoing investigations, right. unfortunately. And uh, so that's, uh, you know, to say the least, quite right. uh, a distraction from the task and the job at hand. But thankfully, they're not uh, uh, in my office as often as they were before, but it was... <laughs> Really, we spent a lot of time. I had to get a lot of reports and go through a lot of that and had a lot of conversations with TEA because of mm -hmm. the ongoing situation. So for me, uh, what I really wanted to do and, and from my prior corporate experience was to spend as much time as I could trying to, to get to know people and uh, get to know the community. We visited every campus um, over the course of the first year, which sounded like a great idea on paper. But uh, <laughs> after about six months in, and we had about 30 schools down, because we were doing town halls and meet and greets, right. it was pretty exhausting. Right. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I think for me, it was just about trying to assess the damage and, and listen to people and build some trust, which is still a challenge. Uh, when you have a, a big deficit of trust that was created in that community, it's, it's going to take years, I think, right. to, to make a change. Did you have a sense, you had been, you have a deep education background as all of the, all of the members of the panel do, but you had been out of education for, for, for many years doing different things. Mm -hmm. What led you to want to take the job? It's obviously, I mean, I think on a good day to be the superintendent of a major district yeah. is a difficult job and we're going to talk about that, but I think in your case even more so because the headlines unfortunately from El Paso and again from the superintendent's office had been terrible. What <clears throat> motivated you to, to jump in and throw your hat in the ring? So when I left the corporate world, I, I started a school law firm because I wanted to teach myself school law in preparation for being a superintendent. And, uh, you know, there's anybody that's a senior person at a school district or school lawyers, you kind of know the scuttlebutt of who's interviewing for what jobs. I mean, you do. You can hear who's going for that or who's going to go for this one. And, and I, had, I had kept my uh, pulse on El Paso. My brother lives there. My mother lives there. I often visited there. And I was watching it for a number of years. And then in uh, June of last year, they, for the first time, changed the application to say you didn't have to be a prior soup to apply. I see. 
And uh, over a weekend, my wife and I said, well, let's, let's give it a shot. So first job I applied for, it worked out. It was a good fit. And I really think the reason I applied for it was because I didn't, I didn't see real strong candidates applying for it. And the commissioner told me himself that they were reaching out and folks weren't interested. So more idealistic, I guess, for me. I know it sounds silly, but I just really wanted to go in there and do the right thing and try to fix it. Superintendent Woods, we'll start with you, and then we'll come back to you, Superintendent Miles. I, I, again, kind of the same question in the time now that you have been in. Your position, has your notion of the job changed? How it is that you're a leader for a major district, that you're addressing problems or uh, trying to move towards solutions? Is it, has it been different from day one as it has been now a couple of years down the road for you? You know, I, I think I, I can't say that it's dramatically different uh, over a couple of years. I, I think that one of the things that I may not have realized uh, before I took the job or as I was taking the job is the amount of time that would be spent in the public policy arena uh, dealing with uh, with those kinds of issues, and, uh, and that's, that has, that's both good and bad, I, I guess. Um, it's an area of great need, uh, I think, in our state, but it does uh, tend to pull at the time in the district and the time being spent on local issues, uh, and I think that the other four would, would agree with that. We all, I think, try to balance what we see as a role to try to uh, improve public ed for the entire state, uh, and yet have our own district run right. well and, right. and, and be a leader in our area. Right. And Superintendent Miles, I mean, your background, we were talking earlier, of course, you are a graduate of West Point, had been in the military in addition to many, many other things going forward. How has that influenced your decision making as you've come into the Dallas Independent School District, which again, over the years, is a large urban, uni a large urban district, has had its fair, uh, fair share of successes, but it has also struggled, uh, that there have been negative headlines over the years going back, many superintendents. How did you begin to approach your position? Yeah, thinking about my past uh, careers in, in the military and then in the State Department, um, my thought about leadership in the, in the superintendency uh, can be summed up in a, in a phrase I use a lot, and that is uh, uh, the superintendent has to be the leader, has to have vision, and make the tough decisions few others are prepared to make. Mm -hmm. And I, I say that um, you know, very purposefully because I think uh, any superintendent here, um, if you really want to move a district, you have to make some tough decisions that are unpopular. And uh, the more transformative you want to be, the tougher the decisions. Mm -hmm. And the job really is to focus uh, your attention on those big lifts, the transformation, the systems, uh, and then trying to let the, the fires that come up not right. overtake right. you and, right. and consume all your time and energy and your staff's time and energy. You right. still have to put out the fires, but uh, you really have to keep focus on the main things, otherwise you'd never get there. So. Um, my expectations two years ago were very similar. They haven't changed that much as far as what the big job is. And um, like, like Paul said, uh, it's, it's a fascinating job in that you have to problem solve all the time. And, um, I like it. It's a challenge. I've got to have thick skin and yeah, move right. forward. <laughs> a thick skin indeed. All right. Uh, let me throw open a question to the group. I, I think, again, in terms of the notion of our, our, our title today, which is Superintendent Confidential, one of the things I'd like to begin to do is to try to provide some insight into what it is, is really like to be a superintendent. We have said in our offices uh, at Texas Monthly over the years, I've been there since 1996, you know, we've talked an awful lot about the difficulties of being a, a major school superintendent uh, when the, the um, when there are failures, there are often sometimes high-profile failures. 
And I think when they are successes, uh, there are successes, I think those often don't get the same level of play or attention. And I believe that to be true, even as a member of the media. I have no doubt that that's the case. But let me start with this question. When you're back in your individual communities, what are you most hearing from your constituents? Who are the people that you are hearing from, and what are you hearing are their concerns? And I think that there's a general expectation or a general sense right now that if you talk about it, say, from a legislative uh, standpoint, from, from the Capitol building, and I covered the the legislature in, in 2013, for example, that there is a fight right now between you know, those people who think that schools are dramatically underfunded and do not have the monetary resources to begin to fulfill their mission. And then there are other people who say, wait a second, wait a second, it's not about money, that the schools, in fact, are inefficient and that they're not using their resources in the right way, that they're, they're too top-heavy. But I don't know that those sides ever, e- either one, particularly clarify how much is enough or how little is necessary. But I'd be curious to see, what are you hearing from your constituents back in your, in your uh, school districts about what they want and what's on their mind and what problems they want addressed? Well, Brian, um, I'll start. Um, you know, obviously it's not, it's not either or. It's probably uh, somewhere in between. Sure. Resources and money can't solve all your problems. I, I like to say you always have enough money to, to do the things you prioritize. So if, you, if you're in the business of prioritizing your need and making sure you spend your money on the most important things, uh, you know, most large systems have enough money to do that. Um, obviously, though, with an educational landscape changing so quickly, I think people are concerned about how to catch up kids who are behind. And that does take resources. And so there's a combination of uh, ensuring we have enough resources, especially for kids who need additional supports. I think most people would understand that, you know, given two kids, one who's behind needs more resources than one who's already at grade level or already at proficiency. And so um, there's that balance. Uh, I think we, uh, educators, we have to make sure and superintendents have to make sure that we show the public that it's not just let's get more money and throw money and people at a problem instead of working systemically, prioritizing and showing the public that you can make good on your efficiencies and financial responsibilities. I think I would add that that what I hear most from my constituents is they want a quality program. Mm -hmm. No matter who, no matter what, they want to be sure that uh, the GT parents want uh, that, that college emphasis for their kids and they want that accelerated piece. And then you've also got uh, students who are coming, our our students, who in many cases are most challenging now, are older students who are English language learners. And, uh, and we want to provide a quality program for them and, and meet their needs. And I'll tell you, uh, a group that I hear from a lot is, is my teachers, because they want to do a great job. And, and when you talk about resources, one of the, the goals that we have, a teacher has a hard job today, and we, there's a lot of things that we do that we didn't do 20 years ago. We do RTI. We do all these interventions. We make sure that we are meeting every child's needs, or at least that is certainly our goal. And that's what our parents want us to do. And then our teachers want to be sure that they are adequately trained to do so, that they have the information that they need, the training that they need, and that they obviously have the materials that they need. And, and I'll tell you another piece that I hear from the community at large, and, and this is something that we've addressed and we've been able to work with in a large sense very well, and that is safety. Uh, you know, kids want to, I mean, parents want to know that their kids are safe when they go to school, that they're safe on the bus. Right. You know, they want, you know, and I've actually heard it said, people will say, well, they'll forgive you if they didn't have the best teacher, but if, if their child right. gets hurt, you know, that, that's an issue. So, 
So anyway, those are some of the things that we hear about in addition to some right. of the general terms. Right. And I think safety speaks obviously to the, the small term aspects of it, but much obviously the much bigger questions that we've seen in the last couple of years. My kindergartner, for example, this year did his first lockdown drill. Mm -hmm. And that was a very difficult thing to be talking about and try to explain. I think his teacher did a very nice job of it. But again, you know, uh, it hasn't been that long since I've graduated from the public schools in Texas. We would have never done something like that uh, when, when I was in school. Okay. What about the rest of you? And I'm curious, too, in terms of, you know, when you're attending school board meetings, for example. I mean, do you often have a situation where there are very, very few people there who are turning out, but then when something does kind of blow up, it, it's overflowing? Do you have a sense that your schools are able to make a connection with the community? Or is it one of those things that because everybody is so busy and lives are so fragmented in terms of our time that maybe you're not hearing things from certain constituents until there really is a problem or at least a perceived problem? That's probably always the case. Right. The, you know, I don't really feel like we hear a lot about, going back to your comment about resources, I don't feel that, and this may be somewhat unique to San Antonio, that we hear a lot about of concern with how local resources are being used. Now, I think, to echo what Wanda said, we hear a lot about quality programming and how are we going to enrich the quality of the programming that we have. Uh, I hear, frankly, a lot of comments about uh, Austin, not meaning legislative uh, comments, about, uh, about a lack of resources and about uh, things like testing and so forth. I, you know, I think that our constituents generally believe that, that what they're getting is good and they probably wish there were some enrichment, uh, but they're, I think, open-minded about where we stand as a, as a state uh, with our resources. One of the things that we've really tried to do is educate our community, both staff and uh, parents and so forth, about where we are as a state uh, and, and that there will be things that we would love to do that simply uh, because they're not the top priorities, they may not be budgeted for. Right. Uh, and so uh, I think that that's, that's part of the role, frankly, is to communicate those, what we perceive to be the truth, and to advocate for what, what we think is, uh, is, is right with regard to, to legislative priority. I think for, um, for us, and I agree with my colleagues, that the good news, and it's certainly true in Austin, that um, issues that are raised are always about quality programming, and about improving student performance and student learning. And that, that is a good news, and that's certainly Austin ISD, um, with a very diverse constituency as well. And, uh, and I think that's important, and I think people connect to that. With whatever background and experiences, we all connect to student learning. Um, with that, uh, and something maybe within Austin, is we are considered a recapture district, a right. property wealthy district. And when I was a superintendent, I was a superintendent of a Chapter 42 district, which is a property poor school district, and now I've worked in guess two or three property wealthy districts, whereas where we have um, given to the state over a billion dollars. This year we are giving, as far as recapture payments, $175 million. And for 2018, we are set to give, as things continue, if they continue as is, over $300 million. Um, and it's $850 billion as far as revenue coming in. And so that's significant. And so I think that the resource question is a challenging one for consumers and for the public to understand where is where's our money going to? We see downtown Austin is growing, it's thriving, people see tax bills, it's significant, it's going up, and I'm not seeing some of the resources I'd like to see at my school. Right. And that's a challenge. And something for us in, in Austin that 
um, for a TRE for us, you know, going at, even after additional uh, pennies as far as uh, taxes, we would keep 50%, 51% of every dollar. And that's difficult to explain to consumers, right. the business community, because that's not the same in other agencies. Right. What you collect is what you collect, and that's revenue coming in. For Austin, as a Chapter 41, and AISD is the highest-paying district to recapture, it's not. It doesn't stay within Austin ISD. And so I think there's, there is uh, tension there to understand how does this happen when we do have schools that are 95 or more percent poverty. Well, go ahead. I'll, I'll just, just to echo some of their comments and then speak a little bit about El Paso. I think that you know, programming is allocation of resources, something that comes up constantly, and specifically for us, you know, they want us to increase fine arts and other extracurricular activities and fund those appropriately, and we do have a lot of issues. You know, we have a disproportionate number of uh, kids that aren't doing well that are English language learners, and then so what are the resources we're going to apply to them is a real big issue across the city. And I think another issue that we're going to have to tackle as a state, because I don't think it's it's going to work from a resource standpoint is how much we spend on safety and security of campuses now, which, you know, five, ten years ago in the school business, you didn't spend almost hardly any time on it. And now, you know, we're, we're spending time with a, you know, a, a visitor ID system. We're trying to create these vestibules or these sort of protected entries where you can't go past. And now, now a school secretary is going to be expected to stop somebody, which right. isn't going to happen. Right. Right. I mean, we really, and, you know, I've got three kids in public schools, and I've been through three or four lockdowns. Unfortunately, they're pretty stressful situations as a parent, so I can uh, really empathize with other parents, and I'm trying hard. We actually spent, this year we hired two individuals, a retired police officer and retired assistant police chief, to just focus on safe security of our buildings. We've done an RFP to have somebody come and analyze every one of our buildings, 96 school buildings, so that's not anything that we had planned for in the past, and if we're going to get less money and still expected to have safe schools... I think we're going to definitely need some help there because um, um, if you don't have the bond dollars, I don't know how we're going to be able to, to right. fund creating a... So, so your notion would be that the, the, what it takes right now, not just to educate an individual student in the year 2014, but to run a district has become so much more complex because of ideas that we wouldn't have been talking about probably 20 years ago. Certainly things like technology in the classroom, exactly. also programs in terms of what the... Uh, the, the, pop, the student population looks like, but then also, again, things related to safety, that we do have protected entries, uh, teacher training, and, and, and things along those lines. Well, so then let me ask you, and, and again, I'll throw this out to the group. Uh, I, my friend and colleague, Paul Burka, had written a story when Governor Richards was in office, a terrific profile of her, and I remember one uh, section of that story that she had gone back and she had seen a letter that had been written to the governor uh, 80 or 90 years before, and what she was pointing out is that many of the things that that constituent was concerned about 80 or 90 years ago were the very things that she was working on as governor, things like criminal justice and certainly you know, public education funding. We have seen, and we certainly saw this in the debate last night, both candidates, General Abbott and Senator Davis, were talking about public education being a, a top priority for them, uh, wanting the, the, to increase things like pre-K, had the number one high school, you know, uh, number one program in the state. Both candidates were saying this. But there was also, in my opinion, in that debate, 
not a lot of talk about where would the funding come from and what would the commitment be to funding. Uh, I don't need to tell any of you, and I don't need to tell any of you, certainly in 2011 we had severe cuts to public education, among other things, but certainly public education took a big hit. A lot of that money began to come back in the 2013 legislative session, but it also put in another round of litigation that we're dealing with. We know that John Dietz has now ruled that the current system is unconstitutional, and so we're making our way through. Uh, all of that sort of brings me to the question of, do, do you have a sense that the legislature is being a good partner for your school districts? Are you all in a situation where you have a sense, or do you have confidence, that the legislature understands the needs of a modern-day school district and is responsive? Yeah. Everybody <laughs> jumping at once. <laughs> so the answer is, uh, I think, pretty clearly no. Uh, the, 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 the question is where to begin in answering that question. I guess the, you know, obviously where, with where we are with Judge Deitch's ruling, uh, funding is uh, is obviously an issue. So I'll I'll start there, and then maybe okay. somebody else might want to take another Please. another area where the legislature seems completely out of touch. So the uh, <laughs> funding, I think, what we see in Judge Deitch's ruling is probably in in a in a multi-decade series of school finance litigation in this state we go all the way back to that, Edgewood right. for example and i'm sure even before before then probably what we have now is the most comprehensive uh, indictment of the funding system that we've ever had uh, and to the degree the supreme court would agree with judge Deeds, to whatever degree that that is uh, what we've seen in the past where the legislature comes in and tweaks uh, just enough to kind of meet the mandate of the order would essentially be impossible. Uh, if, if you really look at, at Dietz's ruling, I think that in order to, to get at all of those issues, and again, obviously we will wait on the Supreme Court, and a lot more to happen, but to the degree that, that we would try to get at those issues, it would take a, a complete rewrite uh, of this funding system. And I, it's, it is where we are in the, in the state. Um, Dietz points out m multiple times in his ruling uh, where we have essentially completely failed to meet the, what is really a, a very small mandate uh, in the Texas Constitution, not a lot of language in the Constitution around what it has right. to look like. That's right. And so uh, the failure is massive. It's epic. It's been coming uh, for decades and I think we're finally at a place, again, depending upon how the Supreme Court rules, where we may, we may force the issue uh, of school funding. School funding in Texas is a mess. We've known that for a long period of time. Now we've got a court ruling that I think lays out, to a degree, uh, a roadmap of how badly we've gone wrong and in the areas that we've gone wrong. Uh, you know, I'd, I'd like to add, um, and maybe this, you have to be a little bit of an optimist and a little bit crazy to be a superintendent anyway, so <laughs> it'll come out in my comments. And I, I think uh, in the end of the day, people of goodwill uh, will win out and um, will have a legislature that will come up with a solution that will help. And, and I don't uh, put all the blame on them. I put some of the blame on us, citizens of the United States, citizens of Texas, um, for not placing as much emphasis on the public education needs. Uh, in the end of the day, we elect the legislature, so we own a little bit of that. Um, but I, in my optimistic viewpoint, I see things changing a little bit. I look at Dallas, for example. I think there's really a sense over the last two years that if Dallas is going to be a vibrant economic city, 
and they're, and it's starting to move even more than it has in the past towards that you know uh, vibrancy. Uh, there's a greater understanding that uh, public education has to right. uh, step up and and meet the needs of the year 2020 and, and beyond. And so I see a lot of the uh, the community there, different parts of the community, really trying to engage and starting to support and say we need money for preschool. Right. We need money for early childhood. We might even have to spend as a society, as a community, money in the zero to the three space. That's not been our charge. And I see that, and, and mind you, Dallas is a city with many different communities, uh, and um, even the community that doesn't have their kids in our school are starting to say that and starting to support us in a major way. So um, I agree with my, my colleagues that there's a lot of work to be done in the legislature, but I'm also optimistic that that's going to shift. You know, I think we, we had some, some positive movement when you look at accountability and look at our testing situation. Mm -hmm. and, and I do believe uh, that people in the legislature really did realize that Things needed, we needed more time in order to make things occur. And that, that's something that I think happens a lot. They, they think, okay, we're going to do 15 tests. And they really are not thinking about how that actually gets implemented in a state the size of Texas and how the instruction needs to change and how fast or how actually it's not fast at all. It's how long it's going to take for us to make a difference in what we're doing for our children. And an example that we're dealing with right now is uh, the math texts have been changed right. and, and elementary math. And this is a good thing. Right? We're pushing the rigor down, want more kids in algebra, you know, doing more for kids for all of the things we want to do for our, our economy and, and so on and so forth and our jobs. But, but it takes time when you change the text. We must have plenty of time for teachers to completely change their lesson plans, go through completely right. different training, yeah. and then so that we can ensure that our curriculum and our daily instruction is aligned to what those new texts say. And I don't believe that a lot of people understand and are willing to take the time for those things to happen. Now, one thing that's good is SSI, as far as the promotion and being tied to fifth and eighth grade math, is not going to happen this year. But, um, but the other idea of uh, moving the test back not, well, we're not interested in doing that. You know, there are lots of things about the intricacies of what we do with the testing that really the legislature does not understand because they really are not tying what that law is requiring in the teaching and learning and how long it takes to make those adjustments. You're, you're talking about one of the major signature bills that came yeah. out of the 2013 session, HB5, which did many, many things, uh, and not, not only, though, reduced the number of EOCs, but also changed pathways to graduation. On the whole, do you see that bill as a positive step forward, a negative step forward? What is it, what, what, how does it affect the district? But I still want to stay, I mean, again, this is the legislature, obviously, mm -hmm. sort of driving it. So I'm curious to see if that is a place where you believe the legislature is being a good partner for your, for your students. Uh, our district turned that into a positive because we did make sure that all of our freshmen would enter under the Distinguished Level of Achievement Plan. So where the state didn't say that, the Austin community did and the board unanimously approved for every eighth grader to enroll in the highest level graduation plan. Mm -hmm. I think another positive of that is that um, while high schools are very complex because as we have students in completing the recommended DAP and um, other graduation options with different tests, you sort of have to still run those programs because you still have sophomores, juniors, and seniors, but now you have a new batch of freshmen coming in. I do think it helped us to um, look at the strength that we have in our CTE programs 
uh, because of career, career pathways, but then it also expanded other pathways that are not necessarily part of career technology education. So I think in, in that situation, where it could have gone many different ways, um, because of our local community had that autonomy, and we chose on the side of rigor and making sure that that's for all of our students. And we are a right. district of 70% of our students are minority, 62% are students uh, are poverty, um, and that was really an important value for the uh, Austin community. We're obviously at a position right now, I think, where we are all aware of what demographic change means to the state, not just in terms of public education, but as it touches every aspect of our lives. What is, what is the most important thing the districts can be doing to uh, begin to not only accommodate new students who are coming in, but also to make sure that they have the opportunities for success. We've talked about this a little bit uh, in terms of those students who don't, you know, English is not their primary language. Uh, what sort of, what would you do if you could just make something happen? What would be the best way to help those student populations and begin to address what that uh, influx is going to mean in the next several years going forward? Yeah, I, I think it goes, it's still programmatic. I mean, it goes back to having the resources and working with your own community and identifying your particular needs. Uh, I mean, some of these you can do with broad brushes with certain demographics or, you know, what children are bringing. But for the most part, it's, it's never going to change no matter the demographics change. You've got poverty. You've got kids that come from, you know, I, I think the biggest barrier now, we don't have as much of a, you know, what I'm seeing is we struggle more with the kids whose parents don't have a high level of educational attainment. We can help kids that don't come from money if, they're, if their parents are focused. I mean, those are things that, you know, I'm feeling like there's a lot of parents that are wanting us to do more with a day with wraparound services and help them, but we're getting less money, so that even right, becomes, right. you know, more challenging. And I wish we could do more with wraparound. I'm trying to, I'm reaching out to the Housing Authority. We've got 10,000 kids that live in, in housing uh, projects, reaching out to the county and to other folks to try to, you know, build some programs together. This year we did a... We'd never done it before. We did a summer enrichment program where instead of just having summer school in Texas has become now remediation, we opened uh, about 30, 40 schools for four, four weeks, and we just made a summer enrichment all day, two meals a day, and we had uh, 14,000 kids sign up first year we'd ever tried it. So mm -hmm. trying to be innovative, trying to be creative, trying to, to, to spend more time with those kids whose parents maybe aren't helping them on the evenings and weekends because that's where we really see a drop. We see a big drop in the summer slide. And, um, you know, going back, I just want to make a comment back on the funding issue. I think, you know, as, as a school lawyer that had the opportunity to spend time in many, many districts, I kind of got to watch from the inside before I, I took this one over. And one of the challenges, I think, that the hurdles we're going to have to overcome when it comes to legislature is there, there are a, a lot of legislators that, as I spend time with them, they say, well, you're wasteful and you're not doing well with the money. And, and, but, but they don't really have anything to back it up. So our challenge is going to be, and I don't know how we do that as, as superintendents and working with them, but what's the litmus test? I mean, I do believe that we are wasteful in, in, in a lot of school districts. We could probably do better with our money. The but, charge often is that, for example, administration is too toxic. Yeah, absolutely. Not enough that. money is actually making. I'm not saying that that's right or wrong, but that is often one of the charges. Well, and, and this is this what we need to overcome. If we, they're going to keep using that language, and it's very broad brush, very general, and that's the thing they always lead with. So we need to figure out a way to create that litmus test so they can, because I, I think there's still a lot of legislators and senators that don't believe that we're good stewards of the money that they give us. 
And as long as there's that belief in the legislature, we're never going to get more money. So how do you, how do, you, how do, you do that? You know, how do you fix that? I think a lot of it is about really educating our legislators. And I know that, that we all work on developing relationships with them, having them come to our buildings, work with us. And, and really, when you show somebody the numbers, we're not top-heavy at administration. And, of course, I can only speak for what we've done in Alding. Mm -hmm. You look, and, and they say, well, then you've got all these principles. Well, if you look at the numbers, we don't have all these principles. Actually, what we really <laughs> need are all these. Uh, and uh, what would we do without these principles? Right. And then, uh, but what we really need are the and more counselors, and you know we're adding those, and so so it's really a matter of just continuing the conversation and really showing them the numbers, because when you look to see this, look to see the students who are arriving each day, each year, look to see the numbers that how we're growing. The other thing I think that's important that we need to share is that we are really all competing for the resources too. Right. You know, we you you talked a little bit about English language learners at the beginning of the question. We're all struggling to find bilingual teachers, to find Spanish-speaking mm -hmm. uh, people to provide the resources for. So we're having to go farther and look more and, and be more creative in the ways that we serve people. But I do think that as long as we continue to reach out with the facts and figures, and we have to market ourselves in that way, too. Mm -hmm. You know, Dallas is, uh, uh, has 10,600 teachers, 161,000 kids, 90% uh, of whom uh, struggle with poverty. Right. Uh, it's one of the largest um, poverty districts in the United States. Um, so you asked earlier, you know, so how do you, how do you catch kids up? How do you, how do you take care of these kids who are coming in, many who don't speak English? We're 70% Hispanic of that group. Half of them have uh, Spanish as their first language, English as their second language. Um, and really the formula for any district that's, that's struggling with kids who come from poverty uh, and who are behind academically is pretty basic. And then you have to think about some future things, too. The basic is uh, it's always an issue of capacity, expectation, and implementation uh, effectively. And the capacity of teachers, principals, and staff uh, to really be high quality, uh, to be bilingual in, in our case, um, expectations, really raising the expectations, uh, these are old-fashioned notions. Right, I'm right, not saying anything right. new, uh, and then implementing systemically well. But what the additional challenge has been over the last decade for us in education and going forward is how to prepare the same kids with the same systemic problems we just talked about for a fundamentally different workplace. So House Bill 5 actually I thought was great news because yeah. if we look at the year 2025, we need to change our curriculum fundamentally. Um, we need to do computer programming as a requirement, for example. We need to probably do statistics rather than you know, pre-calculus. We probably need to do financial literacy or economics. Uh, we need to do some different things, not just your four basic subjects all the time. Right. Um, you know, and if we really want to get away from seat time, then we really should throw out any requirement to say you have to have four years of math or three years of this or four years of anything and say, here's the standard. Um, if you can do it in two, do it in two so that then you can do computer programming or whatever field we think we need to do. Uh, the other major difference for our kids in Dallas is we have to really think differently about where we invest. We need to invest in the zero to five space in huge ways, 
if we're going to get our kids reading by the time they leave third grade so that the rest of their academic career will be you know, more productive and we won't have to put so much money on the back end on remediation and SSI and EE, EOC programs down the road, then we really need to think about how we change our educational paradigm to where that investment is up front. One, uh, I'll circle back to your House Bill 5 uh, comment, Brian. The, you know, House Bill 5, I think, uh, if implemented well, and, and a lot of the burden uh, for that rests on us, yeah. frankly. If implemented well, I think opens the door to a real reconsideration, uh, you know, like Mike's talking about, of our kind of traditional notions about what school has to look like. Uh, and I think that... Uh, that's a, that's a very exciting thing. I, I think it's a very positive thing. I think that a lot of school districts will take advantage of that and do very creative uh, things and focus on um, what's driving the economy in their local area. You know, Texas is very diverse, and, and obviously what drives the economy in one part of the state is very different in another part, and I think that that'll control some of what how House Bill 5 is implemented. But I also think it's really powerful that student interest for the first time in a very long time, will actually play a role in what, what that child, what their graduation plan uh, looks like. Uh, we have had a very top-down, one-size-fits-all graduation plan, uh, and House Bill 5 really opens the door to student and fa- students and families being able to say, this is what I'm good at, this is what I'm interested in, this is what I'm willing to work really hard towards, so give me the, the ability to do that and graduate with a diploma that supports that skill, that, right. that, that right. strength of mine. So there's real, I, I think there's tremendous potential, but there's also tremendous burden on us to do it well. Yeah. Uh, and I think that we'll be watched and, and should be watched. I mean, with the, we need to be held accountable for that. We, we need some resources, time, frankly, being the biggest, in order to do it well. But, but I, I have a lot of excitement, actually, about House Book 5. We're coming up now where we're within 20 minutes left to go of this conversation, so I would encourage you that if you do have questions uh, for our panelists, uh, there are microphones in the aisles here, and I see that we already have a couple of people going, so I think (laughs) this will, which is great, this will take us through to the end. The only thing that I would say is that please make sure that out of respect for the panelists, but also the audience members here, please do ask a question as opposed to provide general commentary. Uh, But beyond that, either address it to the panel in general or any of the specific individuals, and and we'll start with you, ma'am, please. Yes, the only commentary I'll give is that I'm a high school English teacher, and my students and I are very concerned about our early childhood center, as all of you, everybody here, it's the mantra that I hear, is the lack of funding and the lack of resources for early childhood education. My question to you do you have any, do you know of any place in the state of Texas where either local initiatives or philanthropy has stepped in to fund the full day kindergarten, or pre-K, excuse me, because we want to know where and how. Okay. There is a, a program in San Antonio uh, that the city actually used a one-eighth cent uh, sales tax, passed a one-eighth cent sales tax increase to run a program called Pre-K for SA. Oh, yes, yes. Uh, it serves now, I want to say, 1,500 uh, children. Uh, so if you were looking for a model to research, you might consider that. I, I would say to you, just based on my knowledge of how that model came to be, there are others in the United States. There are different models in Seattle. Uh, I'd encourage you to look at a model in Seattle that, that I think is actually very interesting um, 
there are models around, but locally San Antonio would be one for you to look at. I'm on it. Thank you. Yes, I'll just Thank mention you. that that we uh, provide full day pre-K in Alding, and I have seven EC pre-K centers, and um, and we provide. And I'm 85% economically disadvantaged, so we are serving the majority. Of and the you just use your local, your state. You we lose. use yes. We yeah, students, children qualify by, yes, by language uh -huh. or by income, and then the other part of that, it's it, it, technically we're paying for the other half of the day, and that's out of local funds. We we do too. Yes. Well, there are several you districts for do your that. students. Mm -hmm. Lots. Uh, is there a place where I could go to find out which districts do that? Is it just through TEA? I don't even know. That you yeah. Yeah. That's all right. I'll find out. I've taken enough no, no, time. No, no. All the local <laughs> no, no. Thank you. It was an excellent question. Thank you, ma'am. Uh, and we'll come to this side, please. Yes, sir. Thank you. Uh, as we start looking at new curriculum and dual credit and all these other options that are coming into public education, are you, I'll ask a question, are, are you all open to the idea of moving away from grade level education, looking at options like Montessori models, different, different models, rather than sticking all children in the same grade? I'll speak, I'm very much for competency-based education, especially if you take advantage of technology and let kids go as fast as they need to go. And I mean, I, I think that'd be a great model. I think that, you know, fortunately a lot of Texans would care about the junior and senior prom and who do they put on the junior varsity team or something like, like that, but I mean, we have to sort that out. I think that, that if, if kids are ready to move faster and excel and do more, kind of what one of the panelists mentioned, I'm very much in support of that. A lot of uh, charter schools are doing that. I think that we could do that as well. We just, we're going to set up a couple of models we call flex schools at a couple of our high schools. We'll let kids maybe move at a faster pace, and we'll have facilitators in there, and we'll start that next year already. So I'm a big proponent of that. We have uh, eight schools that are in the programming stage for personalized learning. Uh, that's not exactly competency-based learning, but it's very much like that. And the, the premise of that is that a child learns through their own individualized learning plan to move at their own pace, uh, still a rigorous pace, but move at their own pace and can move in an accelerated manner if they, if they can. I'll, I'll just, I'll just, I just want to mention one thing real quick. On the, we had to talk to the legislature about we were looking at one of the roadblocks is if you move a kid ahead, Right now in Texas, you'll still have to go back and take his EOC that right. he might be two years ahead and go back and learn that subject, which wouldn't make sense, so we definitely would need to change that. Go ahead, I'm sorry. Yeah, I was just going to mention that a lot of districts, through their choice, and I know in Alding, we offer Montessori in a couple of campuses, and then one of the things that, that is going to help us with secondary with our ELL students is that multi-age grouping, because you're going to have children coming in from various levels and various academic backgrounds, and you're going to need to group them in that way, but as far as... We've not delved into that in the way Dallas has, so that sounds like a good source. They're really that some of I don't know that you'd find a lot of educators who would be against that, frankly. I, mm -hmm. I think that that's there are some of the old conventions still exist in the law. The Carnegie unit very much is in the law. You really if you look at the education code, it's really very much based on that. And so a lot of things would need to change. There are accountability implications for a child yeah. skipping a grade, if you want to put it that way, that that discourages schools from doing that. So and what would be great is if you could do it, like if a kid's just really strong in math, he could be a ninth grader and finish all their coursework in math and then focus on other areas. Maybe they're more interesting, but we've got to have some, some, uh, some flexibility in the accountability process to allow that child to excel in maybe a strong area with, with technology, with personalized learning, competency-based learning. I think specifically at the high school, um, 
in agreement to what was just mentioned, but specifically at the high school for students to earn college credit. We do have a couple of early college high schools, but we need to expand that. And it does take resources. And, um, and I think specifically at the high school level, where kids are very advanced and can take classes and earn high school credit and college credit. And I think that there we need, we need to create much more space to be able to do that, specifically at the high school level. Um, and then many times it's just like we were, you know, we're always told we're just asking for more money, more money, more resources. Right. I'm like, well, let's try it once, you know, and let's just see that work. And it right. does. Right. <laughs> okay. Very good. Yes, sir, on this side, please. Superintendents, uh, I did some quick math, and the five of you together are serving over almost 500 million, five, a half million students together. So I first wanted to thank you for, for the work you do. Um, some of you mentioned uh, capacity issues in your, in your districts, uh, and in previous panels we heard people talking about um, the need for leadership in the schools um, and concerns about teacher retention. I was hoping that some of you could share with us um, your own thoughts and any district-specific strategies that you're implementing to cultivate the leadership pipelines within your own schools. I'll tell you, part of it, being a superintendent, and this is my eighth year, it, it's I, not only am I thinking about the job that I'm doing and my growth and development in my leadership, but I'm also working on the growth and development of the people in, who will come after me. And, and as somebody who's doing their job in a leadership role is already planning for the next leader. And I do know that and one of the things we've done, because we, in, in Aldine, it's something that we do, we hire from within, but we've developed our own leadership academies that begin with teachers, moving to APs, moving to principals, and then we really begin to look at our succession plan by bringing in our APs, talking to them, looking at their strengths and weaknesses, getting them to do reflection on where they're weak and strong, so that we can actually look to the leadership, for, and I can actually open a drawer and look to the leadership of my district in the future, because uh, you don't want to find yourself needing leadership positions and, and uh, posting and thinking, gee, I hope somebody good shows up tomorrow. Um, so really, I think that that's really part of the complexity of the job, uh, because we're, uh, we're planning for today, but we're also planning to make sure the resources and the, the human capacity is there for the next five years and the next 10 years, too. I, I think bringing up leadership is key. Uh, we started uh, a year ago a school leaders academy also, but it's a full-time leadership academy. I don't, I don't know what yours is, Wanda, but we pay people... Uh, I think it's $60,000 to be in training for a whole year. Uh, at, and their eventual goal is to be an assistant principal or a principal. And so we call it the School Leaders Academy. We took 55 the first year and 45 the second year. Uh, and their full-time job is to learn how to be uh, a good, effective leader of a school. For us, uh, we um, do have our REACH program. Um, and the basis of that, while right now we are currently working with Education Austin, which is our teacher organization, uh, about uh, Pathways of Promise so that teachers then can then go into different fields in administration uh, or in curriculum and instruction. But part of our REACH program was really a teacher becoming a better teacher. It's for the individual who really doesn't want to seek another type of position as an administrator. They love teaching. They just want to improve their, their work. And I, I do think that... Um, that's important because for us, that's a workforce of 6,000. And so while we do have to look at leadership as far as campus leadership, assistant principals, principals, and we have about 300, 6,000 are in classrooms every single day. And that is the way that kids will learn with a phenomenal teacher. Generally speaking, and not, not to jump in, but just generally speaking, of that next group of, of, of future leaders in your districts, do you believe is morale high among that group? 
of those people that you feel are ready to take, that you do think so? Very. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Very. Uh, Yes, sir. Back to this side, please. Thank you. Jim Rice, Fort Bend ISD trustee. Uh, Thank you, superintendents, for the job that you do. I know it's very difficult. My question is this. What do you wish your trustees and parents and legislators, in fact, all people not involved with education, better understood about the challenges that you face, and how can they help you achieve academic success for our kids? That's, that's a, Jim, that's a great question. I, you know, I'm a little familiar with Fort Bend, and I, I would say that, that if more people were engaged in a school, the school closest to them in, in any way, that they would glean that understanding that you talk about and the things that are challenging for public ed, they could learn almost in an iterative process. You know, I I really think that if folks uh, who aren't otherwise engaged in school would go volunteer one hour a week, that, uh, that the things that we would want them to know and understand would come to them. Uh, I really do, and obviously children would benefit at the same time. I, getting communities involved in their school, getting folks who are disconnected from school, uh, for whatever reason, uh, re-engaged in school, I think gets at a lot of what you're talking about. I was just going to say, I think one of the, uh, you know, most folks approach you very myopically, and, and rightfully so, focused on, their school and immediately wanting to change something there. And I think one of the challenges that these large, expansive districts is trying to be equitable with your resources and making sure that you're taking care of. I mean, you know, we don't want to bring it down. We want to bring it out and have every school be great. But we can't always tackle a problem that just hits, you know, either one segment of the employees or just one particular need at a school as we're trying to spread those dollars across, you know, in my case, 96 campuses. It's, it's challenging. Uh, you know, for example, we have 9,000 employees, and, and 5,000 of those aren't teachers. Yet, most everybody that comes to talk to me is concerned about teachers. And I will tell you, they're the most important employees in, in our business. But I still have 5,000 other people that help make sure kids get to school safe, kids are in safe, secure buildings, and kids get fed, et cetera, and so forth, put together a curriculum. I think sometimes folks will look at a school district only from a teacher's perspective because that's the one caring for their child, and, and part of our challenge, or at least my challenge, is keeping morale up and keeping everybody happy so that we take care of the kid. You know, I want a kid to enjoy from the time they get on the bus to the time they get off the bus or they leave. I want them to have smiling faces, adults taking care of them all through the day. So it, it, there's a lot of people that we have to take care of. You know, I think knowledge is key overall for any group. And I know something I bet most of us probably have a similar program. We have a program called Leadership Alding. We bring in community people, grandparents, parents, and we ask them to attend a series of sessions where we take them on field trip. We show them the maintenance department and the transportation because so many parents only know that the bus was late today for my child. They don't realize that we have 650 and that we're transporting you know, close to 50,000 kids and how intricate that is and how complex that is. But we've really been built, trying to build um, community advocates giving them the knowledge about the full workings of the district and all the different things we're doing. Because they really just see their child's teacher and the principal, and they think that's it. And they really don't realize all the things that go on behind the scene to make everything happen for their child to have a good day that day. And so I think a lot of what, you know, every, it's, it's knowledge is power for everybody. 
to be a good parent, parent grandparent, to be a good business partner, uh, and working with the community that, that we need to be able to provide that information and bring them in and then send them out to market for us. We're down to our last few minutes, I'm afraid, so we'll take our last question on this side. Please, thank you. Thank you, and thank you all for coming today to take time to tell us about your role. Um, one question I have is that I see that the superintendent role across the state and potentially even across the country often deal with similar issues. Um, and I wonder how much collaboration you have with other superintendents and other districts in sharing your own best practices and in trying to learn about what others are doing well. Well, I'll say in Region 4, um, the superintendents meet regularly, and, and it's, it's a great um, uh, group of colleagues where we do share best practices. We can visit each other, just even just to sit down at the table and talk about some of the ideas, some of the things that are happening. So we have various opportunities locally where we can make those things happen. In addition to uh, I, the professional relationships that we build with our surrounding districts. I know that we are, you know, and I'll tell you just an example. We work together. I don't know about y'all, but we're on a big conference call on a snow day. Mm -hmm. And we're all at you know, 5.30 in the morning. What time are we calling in? You know, we work together to talk about those kinds of things because that makes a big difference. I talk about community impact and people being upset with you. But, but we talk about the best practices. We talk about just the daily workings. We talk about we're, we're coordinating our calendars to the degree that we can. Uh, you know, you have families who live and work in different districts and things like that. So, so we do a lot of networking in Region 4 in addition to other professional groups. That's the same for uh, Region 13 in Austin. actually just got together this past weekend uh, with eight um, superintendents within the area. And, and I do echo what Wanda said, particularly uh, bad weather days is when <laughs> <laughs> we collaborate quite frequently via text and everything else that needs to happen. Well, I think that will be our last word, so thank you. I'd like to thank all of you for attending today. But please give a warm round of applause to our panelists. Thank you all. And please continue to enjoy the festival. Thanks for coming out to our session today. Thank you, everybody. <laughs>